Somebody sitting on the limbar and discussing the Qur'an purified in the Holy Quran. Women have had the inheritance. Ali has come to you with the clouds. Allah in Surah Al-Nahl also addresses another important question. The United States of America, the United Kingdom, Australia. Chapter 16. Surah Al-Nahl was revealed in the seventh or eighth year after the Ba'tha of Rasulullah and in the holy city of Mecca. It seems that this chapter was revealed in an extremely difficult period for the Muslim community. How so? The Muslim community who remained steadfast, patient, alongside Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam, they were excommunicated. They were killed. They were tortured. They were separated from their family members. They were isolated. They were on under economic sanctions. They were losing hope that the religion of Islam will survive those tribulations. At the same time, they would see the enemies, the mushrikeen, the Meccans, become more powerful and more capable every single day. So this was a question in their mind. How is it that we've dedicated our lives to God? We've dedicated our lives to the religion of Islam. We've given so much fi sabilillah, yet we have no strength. Things are becoming more difficult every single day. Those hardships and tribulations are endless. And it doesn't seem that they're going to end soon. While we find that the enemies of God, those who kill us, those who harass the Prophet wasallam are becoming more powerful every single day. And this was an extremely valid question in their minds. Maybe it even made them question their belief. Maybe it even at times made them question the validity of the prophethood of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Chapter 16, Surah An-Nahl, the bee was revealed in such circumstances. To tell the Muslim community, the small community, this outnumbered community, take a look at the small insect. This is the greatest miracle of God. Take a look at this insect, the bee. And the community of the bee, there you will find the answer to your concern. And it's shocking how sometimes we feel that the Qur'an is out of date. 
The Quran does not bring solutions to us, the text of the Quran. I tell you, seek inspiration from the Holy Quran, even from the title of the chapters. Today, as you find the religion of Islam outnumbered, it has so many enemies, and those enemies are either within the religion of Islam, those who call themselves Muslims, but are the enemies of the religion of Islam or external enemies to the religion of Islam. <clears throat> and sometimes we question, why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps on giving them strength? Why is it that many of the believers remain weak? Why is it that there are so many wars of injustice and tyranny around the world and Allah does not aid the believers? We ask ourselves those questions until today. Where should we seek inspiration and answers from the Holy Quran? Allah says, don't look at the selfishness of the community of human beings, though they have been given intellect, they have independence to choose. And some of them will choose to become tyrants. Some of, us will, some of them will choose to become zalim. And like I said a couple of days ago, some of them will choose to manufacture weapons to destroy humanity. Some of them will mass produce drugs and give it to young men and women to destroy their lives. Why? Because of selfishness. Because we want to become rich, we want to become powerful. However, look at the small insect, the bee. This bee look, works as a community. No bees are jealous from one another. No bees are out there to destroy one another. They work together to bring prosperity to their community. And I don't have time to discuss Surah Al-Nahl. I have an extremely different topic this evening. But Allah in Surah Al-Nahl also addresses another important question. A question that probably lives in the minds of non-Muslims and Muslims alike until today. But it was an extremely important question in the minds of the non-Muslims then. Muhammad. Ya Muhammad. You are an ordinary man. You sleep, you eat, you sweat, you're happy, you're angry, you're sad, you get married, you have children, you're just like us. There is really nothing special about you. Why is it that God didn't send us a superman, uh, a human beyond the humankind. Isn't it that the Christians believe Jesus, the son of Mary, is the son of God? Well, that makes him special. He's the son of God. What are you? You're just an ordinary man. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressed this question in Surah Al-Nahl as well. Because I can tell you, though sometimes some non-Muslims 
ask certain questions about the religion of Islam, they address certain topics, though it starts from them, but many of the Muslims also have the same questions. Many of the Muslims also debate those topics in their minds. And I, I don't want to mention all the questions and concerns of the non-Muslims addressed to the Muslims that Muslims similarly find extremely important to discuss. For example, why is it that men are allowed to have four wives, but women are not allowed to have four husbands? Why is it that Rasulullah had multiple wives? Why is it that there are verses that speak of violence within the Holy Quran? Was Islam really spread by the sword? Does Islam promote the killing of non-Muslims? Does Islam treat women fairly, equally? Why is it that women have half the inheritance of a man? Those are questions that non-Muslims pose to the community of Muslims, but Muslims similarly have those questions in their minds. and They need to be addressed. This was one of those questions. That yeah, the, the non-Muslims ask those questions, but I guarantee you some of the Muslims were also thinking about it. Until today, you know, some people have a hard time understanding that Rasulullah was an ordinary man. Imam Ali, he was an ordinary man. You know, there is a tradition from Rasulullah that says, a part of his sermon or discussion, he says, Imam Ali has come to you with the clouds. So what do they say? They say every time it rains, it's Imam Ali who's sending us this rain. They have misunderstood this hadith. Rasulullah had a amama turban. It was called the sahab. When he sometimes wanted to send Imam Ali with a message and to give certainty to the Muslims that this message comes for specifically from Rasulullah, he would either give him his amama, known as Sahab, or he would give him his she camel to give validity to the Muslims that I give I gave my she camel to Ali. And here he is delivering, for example, Surah Al-Bara'a to you. He came with a she-camel of Rasulullah. Other messages delivered by Imam Amir Al-Mu'mineen while he wore the Amama of Rasulullah known as Sahab. Today we have a hard time accepting the fact that Imam Ali was an ordinary man. So we say, he comes to us from the cl- Rasulullah says, so they asked him, Ya Muhammad, you're an ordinary man. What makes you special? Allah responds to this question. Listen to this. Allah responds to this question. He says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ إِلَّا رِجَالٍ Every prophet before you was also an ordinary man. You're not the only one. Every prophet before you also slept and ate and got married and 
they were born on a specific day and they died on a specific day and they got ill and they had their own needs. They were ordinary men. However, with one major exception, Nuhi ilayhim. They received the revelation. They were connected to the Almighty God through wahi. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables them to have unlimited resources of knowledge. Not just knowledge about religion and faith, but every sort of knowledge. So how do we test those people? Anybody that comes and says, I received the revelation. God speaks to me. I am a prophet. Do we believe them? And there are many people. There were people after Rasulullah that claimed they were prophets. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam says, La nabiyya, la nabiyya, ba'di. La, there is no prophet after me. So there were people calling themselves la. Tell them, why are you calling yourself la? He says, because the prophet says, I am a prophet after him. La, my name is la. La nabiyya ba'di. La is a prophet that comes after me. My name is la. And people have different claims every day. Claiming prophethood, claiming all sorts of things. At the beginning of the fall of Iraq, if you remember, there was a cult by the name of Jundis Sama, the army of the heavens. The head of that army claimed he was the direct son of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, Imam Ali. Habibi, there's about 1,400 years gap between you and Imam Ali. How are you the direct son of Imam Ali? He says, yeah, I, I, that, I'm a miracle. I'm a living miracle amongst you. Therefore, anybody can come and claim a lot of things. So how do we test those people? How do we know that they are really prophets? Allah says, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask Ahl al-Dhikr. And they must provide you with answers. That's how you will be able to differentiate a real prophet from a false prophet. Ask them about chemistry. They have to know. Ask them about biology. They have to know. Ask them about politics. They have to know. Ask them about history. They must know. This is what differentiated Rasulullah from the rest of the people. He had unlimited sources of knowledge. Then Allah says, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ No, ask the people of the dhikr. Now the dhikr is the Qur'an. Who are the people of the Qur'an? Pay attention to me. Dhikr is the Qur'an. Who are the people of the Qur'an? Allah and the Qur'an answers this question. <coughs> he says, لَا يَمَسُّهُ إِلَّا mutahharun." No one understands and comprehends the Qur'an fully except if they have been purified and they have been chosen to be purified by the Almighty God. Who has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala purified in the Holy Qur'an? The Qur'an answers again, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسِ 
أهل البيت ويطهركم تطهيرا صلوا على محمد وآل محمد Allah chooses to purify this household and they are the embodiment of the Quran and I don't have time to really talk about the details of how we can connect this ayah with this ayah but let me tell you how do we prove that Ahl al-Dhikr are indeed the Ahl al-Bayt because Allah says we must ask and if we ask they must have answers let me ask you one question. Go and ask every Muslim since the demise of Rasulullah until today. Ask any Muslim. Tell them who were the individuals that had answers to everything. They had all the answers. They never said we don't know. Go and ask someone else. The only ones were the Ahlul Bayt. Who besides Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muwahideen Ali ibn Abi Talib was able to sit on the minbar and tell the people, Saluni qabla an tafquduni fa'inni wallah saluni an turuq al-samaa fa'inni wallah a'lamu biha an turuq al-ard. Ask me before I depart. Ask me of the heavens. Ask me of the earth. I have all the answers for you. Who else was able to do that? Or find me one man that claims he was the teacher of Imam al-Sadiq, or Imam al-Baqir, or Imam Zayn al-Abideen, or Imam al-Jawad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them the knowledge of the Qur'an, the knowledge of the dhikr, so they have become Ahl al-Dhikr. And every one of those things that I have mentioned, by the way, so far, they need 10 lectures by themselves. But I'm trying to give you an introduction so that we can reach the topic that we want to discuss this evening, an extremely important topic. When Ahl al-Dhikr are no longer with us, they're no longer amongst us, especially in the time of the occultation of the 12th Imam, how do we ask Ahl al-Dhikr? How do we communicate with them? How do we seek their knowledge? Today as we gather in the month of Muharram, the followers of Ahl al-Bayt gather all around the world and every village and every city and every country. There is somebody sitting on the minbar and discussing the ilm of Ahl al-Bayt. Their ilm when it comes to every aspect of our lives. Where did this ilm come to us from? How did it reach us? Those are very important questions that we must ask brothers and sisters. And I tell you those discussions are happening every single day at universities. Whether it's the United States of America, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand... Western academic universities are talking about those extremely important topics. Yet, we have no clue who were the founders of the institution of knowledge within the Shi'i Madhab. 
Today when we talk about hadith, who were the ones that brought those hadiths to us? Compiled those hadiths and books. Who were the founders of these Shi'i learning institutions? In which year did this happen? Who are the most influential scholars within the Shi'i madhab? This is what I want to address this evening. Exactly this. Who are the most influential Shi'i scholars of all time? Why of all time? Because today, our fiqh is influenced by them. Our aqaid and our belief is influenced by them. Our hajj is influenced by them. Our khums is influenced by them. Our a'mal, our ibadat is influenced. Everything that you are today and what you believe in today has been heavily influenced by those individuals, those scholars. They are the manufacturers and the makers of the Shi'i identity today. You don't know them. We must get to know them. You must learn of their biography. We must discuss them. Like I said, and when we discuss them, we should not discuss them as superheroes. Yes, they were superheroes. Superheroes that they were infallible. Infallible superheroes. No, but we discuss their biographies as great scholars that initiated this movement, the scholarly movement within the Shi'i madhab. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam departs this ummah, brothers and sisters, he says, Inni mukhallifun fikum thaqalain I'm leaving amongst you two things, kitab Allah wa atrati. So he put kitab Allah and the atra, the family of Rasulullah next to each other. Is the Qur'an infallible, brothers and sisters? Is the Qur'an infallible? I'm asking you. Yes. So when Rasulullah puts the Ahl al-Bayt next to the Qur'an, what does that mean? They are also infallible. He puts them right next to each other, equal to one another. The Qur'an has unlimited knowledge. Therefore, the Ahl al-Bayt must have unlimited knowledge. The Qur'an does not teach us batil. Therefore, the Ahl al-Bayt cannot teach us batil as well. But today when we come to our books, within our books, there is batil and there is haq. There is truth and there is fabricated hadiths. There are hadiths that were manufactured, innovated, written, and placed in our books. And no, there are valid hadiths. Therefore, we can never claim that those scholars were infallible. Those scholars did not make any mistakes. But what we are here to discuss is that they were the pioneers of this movement. Today, every scholar, every faqih, every marja', every alim is indebted to those people. A faqih is not a faqih unless he goes through them and their books. A marja' does not become a marja' unless it's through them. A mujtahid is not a mujtahid unless he reads their books cover to cover. So who are those personalities? 
Number one. Sheikh Muhammad bin Ya'qub al-Kulayni, Thiqatul Islam, the author of Kitab al-Kafi. That's one. Number two. Al-Shaykh Abu Ja'far ibn Babawayh al-Qummi, known as Shaykh al-Saduq, the author of the book, Man la yahdaruhu al-Faqih. And number three, Al-Shaykh al-Tusi, or also known as Shaykh al-Ta'ifah, the author of Al-Istibsar, and Tahdeeb. Those four books are the four main Shi'i books. When we talk about Shi'i literature, this is what we mean. When we talk about the foundations of Shi'i belief, this is what we mean. The most authentic of Shi'i books, this is what we mean. When we talk about the source of hadith within the Shi'i world, this is what we mean. When we talk about the source of fiqh within the Shi'i world, this is what we mean. Those four main books, Al-Kutub Al-Arba'a. And it's only meaningful that we speak of those books and the biography of those individuals. Therefore, I'm going to examine this topic in the following manner this evening. Number one, in which period did those scholars, those three scholars live? Notice there are four books, but three scholars. Two of those books are written by whom? Sheikh Al-Tusi, Sheikh Al-Ta'ifah. So we are discussing three scholars, three pioneers, three founders. When did they live? In which period did they live? What was the political situation of the Shia like in that specific era, in that specific time? Number two. We will discuss the life, legacy, and the vision of Shaykh Al-Kulayni. Not just his book. What was the vision of Kulayni? Only by studying the vision of Kulayni, I better understand the books and the legacy of Kulayni. Number two. We, number three. We will discuss the life and the biography of Shaykh Al-Saduq. Ibn Babawayh al-Qummi al-Saduq and also the vision of Shaykh al-Saduq. And number four, the life and the legacy of Shaykh al-Tusi and the vision of Shaykh al-Tusi. Why do we need to discuss when and where they lived and their vision? Listen to me. This is the highlight of this evening. I want you to go home and take this with you tonight. I said several nights ago, if you want to know a scholar and what influences a scholar and you want to better understand the works of a alim, a mujtahid, a faqih, a scholar, you have to study the period in which he lived. Where did he live? What was the political situation like? Because that most certainly played a role in creating his vision. That most certainly played a role in manufacturing of his ideas. Every time he picked up the pen and he wrote something, he was influenced by his surroundings. 
He was influenced by the political situation of the Shia community. And that is why you find one, one issue, one issue, such as Salat al-Jumu'ah, the Friday prayers, and a variety of different fatwas from the Shi'i scholars. Why? Because every one of them, when he studied and he gave his fatwa in regards to this specific issue, Salat al-Jumu'ah, he looked at his own surroundings. Obviously, he looked at the Quran, he looked at the Hadith, he looked at the Ijma', he looked at Aql. But there was one factor that played a role in his mind in drawing that conclusion, coming to that final statement. So we will study the era in which, in which they lived and their vision. What was their vision? When we study their vision, we can better understand their legacy and their work. So we don't come and say, well, Sheikh al-Saduq, for example, we'll talk about him, was disrespectful to the Prophet and to the Imams at times. Some of the work we'll study, we'll come across some of his statements, and they'll come off to be disrespectful towards the madhab of Ahlul Bayt or even the Ahlul Bayt themselves. But once we study the vision of Saduq, we understand, no. This man went there to protect the legacy of Al-Muhammad. Similarly, when we study the vision of Shaykh Al-Kulayni, I better understand why is it that he compiled Kitab Al-Kafi. And similarly, when it comes to Shaykh Al-Tusi, those three scholars, brothers and sisters, lived in a period where the Abbasi regime was coming to an end. You know, Bani Umayyah was overthrown by Bani al-Abbas. When Bani al-Abbas came, they came with this slogan, Al-Ridha min Ali Muhammad. Al Muhammad have seen so much injustice and tyranny by Bani Umayyah. So we are here to bring back Ahl al-Bayt into the picture, give them glory. Give them the power. Bring back their status within the community of the Muslims. But once Bani al-Abbas did come to power, they killed more Imams than Bani Umayyah. They killed more followers of the Ahl al-Bayt than Bani Umayyah did. They killed and they imprisoned more of the Sadat and the children of Al-Imam Amir Al-Mu'mineen Ali ibn Abi Talib than Bani Umayyah did. Towards the end of the Bani Al-Abbas and their empire, they were weakened. And this gave an opportunity for several uprisings. One of the uprisings resulted in the formation of the very first Shi'i state, the Buwaydis. Buwaydis. They created a state in Baghdad in the year 320. And it ended in the year 460. So 320 years after the migration of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa from Mecca to Medina. You have to keep those dates in mind. 
We are now 300 years apart from Rasulullah. All the way to the year 460, they had an on and off government. During that period, those three individuals, those three scholars existed. And they mainly resided in Baghdad, where it was the capital and the most powerful city for the followers of the Ahlul Bayt. For example, historians, many historians, Muslims and non-Muslim historians even, Sunni and Shia historians speak of the year 352 in Baghdad. This was an extremely special year, 352 after Hijrah. For the very first time, there was a aza for Imam al-Husayn in Baghdad, in the streets, where people came and gathered in thousands and thousands, and they did the aza of Imam al-Husayn publicly. This happened for the very first time in the year 352 after the hijrah, while it was endorsed by the government. Yeah, people were going and crying and beating their chest. And, but what happens if they were caught? They'd be killed. They would literally cut off their limbs. They would amputate their hands. They would bury them alive. But here for the first time, in the period of the Buwaydis, no, the Shia were able to gather and practice their rituals freely. And it also speaks of another incident, the celebration of Eid al-Ghadir, also in Baghdad, for the very first time, the year 352. Those ulama lived in this specific period, except Shaykh al-Tusi, towards the end of his life. This government was overthrown, and Shaykh al-Tusi had to migrate to the holy city of Najaf. And inshallah, we'll talk about the, this part of the, the Shaykh's life when we discuss his biography. So those scholars had freedom to talk, to write to teach, to gather companions, to discuss the ulum of Ahlul Bayt. However, there is an extremely interesting point when it comes to discussing the life of a Sheikh Al-Kulayni. Sheikh Al-Kulayni died in the year 329 after Hijrah. So he lived specifically during Al-Ghayba Sughra the minor occultation of the Imam. Right before the major occultation, Al-Ghayb Al-Kubra, he lived in that specific period. And the Wukala, the representatives of Imam Al-Mahdi were also in Baghdad. Pay attention to this. There was no interaction between Sheikh Al-Kulayni and those Sufara of Imam Al-Mahdi. That's a discussion of its own. That's a completely different discussion of its own. An extremely in-depth discussion. Though some scholars have stated that Imam al-Mahdi has written that Kafi, the book of Kafi, is sufficient for the Shia, such thing has not been proven by our scholars. In fact, Ayatollah al-Uzma al-Sayyid al-Khu'i, rahmatullahi alayhi, in his book of Rijal, he says, 
Al-Sheikh Al-Saduq, who came right after Kulaini, believed that a great deal of the book of Al-Kafi was not accurate. Therefore, he wrote his book, Man La Al-Faqih. And this is what I want to tell you, brothers and sisters. When we, now we're talking about hadith and we're talking about the school of Ahl al-Bayt, so let's go and pick up Kitab al-Kafi, let's go and pick up, you know, Bihar al-Anwar, let's go and pick up a book and let's start reading and then tomorrow you sit there and you say, you know, I read this hadith. You say, brother, a hadith is not a hadith Unless it's proven that it came from the Ahl al-Bayt. How do you prove that? You have to go through Ilm al-Rijal. You study the chain of narrators. You study where this book was written. When was it written? How authentic is this book? What type of authenticity was applied to the chain of narrators? Many, many aspects play a role and determining whether a single narration, a single hadith is valid or invalid. How many hadiths are in Kitab al-Kafi? 16,000. According to Sayyid al-Khawi, one-third of them is valid. One-third. According to al-Shaheed al-Thani, 5,000 of them are valid hadiths. And this is the job of the maraja'. This is the job of the scholars to determine which hadith is Valid and which hadith, hadith is invalid. Some people say, Well, Sayyidina, you know what I believe? I believe all the hadiths are valid. Who are you? Excuse me. What's your expertise? Where did you come? Well, I read it online and it, I like that idea. All the hadiths are valid. Where'd you come up with this? If you were to quote a hadith, Without understanding its meaning, yeah, sometimes those hadiths are valid. They've come to us from the Ahl al-Bayt. Even the chain of narrators is valid. But maybe we don't understand what the hadith is really trying to say. The context of the hadith, and we sit there quoting the hadith, we will defame the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt, draw people away from the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt. That is why studying hadith is the job of the ulama, the fuqaha, the maraji'. Once they determine that this hadith is valid, go and read it. Go. Obviously, we're not stopping you from reading the, the hadith. But read it with an understanding of the surrounding environment of those books. Right? And when you want to discuss this hadith, use the explanation of the ulama, the tafsir of the ulama on those hadiths. That's extremely important. What was the vision of Shaykh Al-Kulayni? Shaykh Al-Kulayni's vision, brothers and sisters, Rahmatullahi Alayhi, Sirrah, he, his vision was to create a religious movement based on knowledge, based on the teachings of the Ahl al-Bayt, not based on emotions. He lived in a time where the very first government for the Shia was established, but they didn't have a book. They didn't have a reference. And he was the merger of his time. People need a reference. So he gathered those hadiths and he wrote this book. And Shaykh Al-Kulayni himself, he said, I did my best to bring about the most valid of hadiths. 
and place them in my book. And today, the most revered and respected book within the school of Ahlul Bayt is Kitab al-Kafi. And I am surprised why people end up going reading all sorts of books, hearing all sorts of opinions, and they don't even have a copy of Kitab al-Kafi within their homes. They don't even have a relationship with this book that contains the teachings of Al-Muhammad, the communications of Ahlul Bayt with their followers. Number two, number three, I am sorry. Examining the biography of al-Shaykh al-Saduq. Al-Shaykh al-Saduq, brothers and sisters, I don't think you'll find anybody with a biography similar to his. He's had 250 teachers. When they list his teachers, 250 people. He literally traveled the entire Muslim world to find hadiths to learn, to discuss. Because people today, they think, well, hadith was something written in books, so all he needed to do is take one from here, take one from there, put them next to each other. No. There was one person who, for example, wrote 300 hadiths, right? Where did he write them? In his book. Where was his book? In his house. It's not that they had, you know, printing machines and they were printing those books and putting them online for people to read. No. If you wanted that book with those hadiths, you would have to travel all the way to Ray. Where, where was Ray? Ray was in Tahran. Today's Tahran. You would have to go all the way to Qom. You would have to go all the way to Tus, Khurasan. You would have to go all the way to, for example, Iraq, Mecca, Medina. Al-Sheikh. As-Saduq went to every one of those cities. And sometimes he studied under the Nawasib. They weren't just Sunni scholars, but they actually disliked the Ahl al-Bayt. Go and read his biography. He, says, I, he himself says, he says, I have a teacher. I studied with him. When he would mention the name of Rasulullah, he would say, Allahumma salli alayhi farda. Oh Allah, just send your blessings to him. Meaning not his Ahl al-Bayt. This is how much he hated Ahl al-Bayt. Allahumma salli alayhi farda. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. But he did, that didn't stop Shaykh al-Saduq from studying under him. And Shaykh al-Saduq, brothers and sisters, had a vision. And that vision to, was to remove the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt from superstition. You know, it was the beginning of the Shia movement, Shia government, freedom. And I tell you, the greatest of problems that the Shia community has suffered from is people who know how to speak well but have no knowledge. Storytellers. Storytellers. Allahu Akbar. Until today. Find people sit on the minbar and all they do is entertainment. It's a show of entertainment. Wallah, you leave after the lecture. Say, brother, sister, what was the topic? Wallah, it was so inspirational, but I don't know the topic. It was so beautiful, but I'm not sure what I learned today. 
We don't have time to waste, brothers and sisters. We don't have time for entertainment. You want entertainment? Go watch a Hollywood movie. Wallah, I'm so inspired. I feel like a much better person now. Go and learn. Go and learn about your madhab. Go and seek knowledge. Who are you fooling? Even in the 10 days of Muharram, instead of going and learning something, instead of stimulating our minds, I am telling you today, non-Muslims are discussing the makers of the Shia identity. They are, they are discussing Shaykh al-Saduq and Shaykh al-Kulayni and Shaykh al-Tusi. But you... Bring an average Shi'i who's been going to Majalis for 10 years, 20 years. I don't know who Shaykh Al-Tusi is, huh? Tusi? I don't know. Who's Shaykh Al-Kulayni? Never heard of him. Who's a, who's a Shaykh Al-Saduq? I have no idea. What are the main books of the Shi'is? I have no idea. Some of us, we know Bukhari and Muslim, but we don't know Shaykh Al-Saduq and Shaykh Al-Tusi. And that's shameful. That's hurtful. And that's unacceptable. This member of Imam al Hussein, brothers and sisters, must be dedicated to knowledge. It shouldn't make people lazy. If you go to a lecture and you leave and you don't feel like you have to go and search something online, continue the research. You better believe this member has failed. This member has not done its job. The job of the member of Ahl al Bayt is to stimulate your minds so that you go and you learn. <clears throat> As Shaykh al Saduq, his vision was to remove superstition, to remove the role of the storyteller. So you know what he actually did? He enjoyed power in, in a sense that people listened to him and they respected him and they found him to be the grand authority of the time. So you know what he did? He actually forbid the storytellers, storytellers from sitting on the mimbar. No. Go, either go and le learn, seek knowledge, become an alim, then sit on the mimbar or you cannot sit on the mimbar. Some of them were actually driven out of the seminaries by Shaykh al-Saduq. You don't belong here. You belong to an entertainment industry. Go there. Many people think Shaykh al-Saduq had this animosity against the madhab or some of the scholars. Or No. He had a movement against the ghulat, those who exaggerated. Hmm. <clears throat> he should be here today. To see what's going on with some of the so-called scholars of the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt. So, Shaykh al-Saduq had a vision, brothers and sisters. And why is it that he is revered today? Why is it that he is respected today? Why? It's because he understood the needs of his community then. And that is the job of a scholar. That is the job of an alim. 
And then we come to a Sheikh At-Tusi, Radhwanullahi alayhi. Sheikh At-Ta'ifah. No one's been given this title until today. The Sheikh of the Shi'i Madhab. Literally one of the greatest geniuses of all time. One of the greatest scholars of all time. Sheikh At-Tusi. Died in the year 460 after Hijrah. As Shaykh Atusi became so powerful, brothers and sisters in Baghdad, that Sunni scholars would come to Baghdad to study under Shaykh Atusi. Go read his biography. He had a kursi, a chair, a mimbar, where when he would sit and he would teach every single Muslim scholar from every single madhab would be present under the member of Shaykh Atusi. We don't have that today. No scholar has that today, until today. And he was able to establish the greatest library of all time. This library started at the time of Shaykh Al-Mufid. But towards the end of the life of Shaykh Al-Tusi, the Shi'i government was overtaken by the Turks. So the first thing they did is they burned down the minbar of Shaykh Al-Tusi. They burned it down. And then they burned down his library. The biggest Islamic library of that time. As Shaykh Al-Tusi, the author of Al-Istibsar and the book of At-Tahdeeb is also the author of numerous books. And what Shaykh Al-Tusi was known for is every time he spoke of a fatwa, every time he spoke of an opinion by the Shia, he gave the opinion of every other school of thought. How is it that this school of thought has reached this conclusion and this fatwa? And why is it that the Shi'i madhab differs? Every single fatwa. And Shaykh Al-Tusi, according to Sayyid Muhammad Baqir, As-Sadr, he has a statement about Shaykh Al-Tusi. He says he was the founder of Ijtihad for the Shia. You know, before that we were afraid of Ijtihad. What was Ijtihad? Ijtihad meant that the Allah has said something in the Quran, and then the Prophet has said something, and then the Ahl al-Bayt, then I come and I give another opinion. I say, no, 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 Imam Sadiq was wrong. This is the right opinion. But Shaykh Al-Tusi created another definition for Ijtihad. What was the definition? Go and look at those hadiths, then look at the Quran, then use your aql and extract a law, extract your opinion. That is called ijtihad. As Shaykh Atusi was the founder of this movement. And towards the end of his life, obviously, his life was in danger in Baghdad. So he decided to migrate to where? Al Najaf al Ashraf. They told him, Shaykhana, before you go to Najaf, where do you want to buy a house? He says, I would like to buy a house next to the house of As-Sayyid Mahdi Bahr al-Uloom. They tell him, Shaykhana, you don't know where Sayyid Mahdi Bahr al-Uloom lives. Maybe he doesn't have a good neighborhood. Maybe the house next to him is small. He says, I'm not buying the neighborhood. 
I am paying to be a neighbor of a alim from Al Muhammad. I don't care where it is. Find me a house next to Sayyid Bahr al Ulum. Allahu Akbar. And when he migrated, Shaykh Al Tusi, when he migrated from Baghdad to Najaf, he took with him the entire seminary, the entire Hawza. He revived the house of Najaf al Ashraf. And today, where is he buried? Masjid al Tusi. Right next to the shrine of Amir al Mu'mineen. Right there, next to him. Every time you visit Amir al Mu'mineen and you see the thriving Hawza of the holy city of Najaf, recite a Fatiha for Shaykh al Tusi. For those people, we are gathered here this evening discussing the uloom of Al-Muhammad, the sciences of Al-Muhammad, the hadith of Al-Muhammad, and we are indebted to them. They were the pioneers of the movement of knowledge and hadith and discussion and ijtihad and fiqh within our community. And brothers and sisters, this journey must continue. This journey of awareness must continue, should not stop here. And tonight, when we discuss Abel Fadl Abbas, when we discuss Qamaru Bani Hashim, when we discuss this brother of Hussein, when we do his ziyara, what do we say? We say, you had basira, you had awareness. Abu al-Fadl Abbas was a man that followed Hussein with knowledge, with certainty. Not just because he was his brother. No. In fact, on the 10th of Muharram, Shimr came to him. He says to him, Ya Abu al-Fadl, come and speak to me. So, Abu al-Fadl was ignoring him. Imam Hussein says to him, Ya Akha, Ya Abel Fadr, go and see what he says. He says, Ya Abu Abdullah, I don't want to see the, man, the face of this man. Imam Hussein says to him, go and see what he says. So he goes to Shimr and Shimr says, we have a blood relation, Ya Abel Fadl. You and your four brothers, I have taken amnesty from Umar ibn Sa'd for you. Walk away from Hussein. You will not be killed tomorrow. I've taken amnesty for you. What does Abel Fath tell him? He says, Thakalatka ummuka ya shamr. May your mother sit in your on your grave. You are giving me amnesty, and you don't give amnesty to the grandson of Rasulullah to the son of Fatima and Ali, and you expect me to neglect him? This was Abu al-Fadl Abbas. This was the son of Amir al-Mu'mineen. A man of knowledge, a man of awareness, a man of sabr, a man of loyalty. A man of loyalty and bravery. And he resembled his father Amir al-Mu'mineen on the 10th of Muharram. He resembled the Lion of God on the 10th of Muharram and on that battlefield. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.